वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणुरमर्दनम वंदे so we are studying the bhagavad gita in this class and we are on the 10th chapter towards the end of the 10th chapter and if you remember what we have been doing in this 10th chapter is uh, it's called vibhuti yoga the yoga of divine glories the idea being that the prime obstacle to god realization enlightenment is that our mind is always externalized we see the world we don't see god now one of the ways to tackle that is given here in the 10th chapter sri krishna is is telling arjuna where your mind goes what attracts you in the world power glory beauty learning you know strength wealth all the stuff that externalizes our mind all those are glories of god all those are my glories they should remind you of me so think of all the wonderful things in the world where you are which attracts your attention as the glories of god you connect them to me then arjuna asks can you give me some examples so that's what krishna has been giving a, s- a series of examples um and we are going to continue with that we had done up to 33 if i remember aksharanam uh, aksharanam akaro asmi dwando samasikasya cha aham eva akshaya kalo dhata aham vishvato mukha i think we had done the third, 33 one and he continues before we go on just make some observations about what exactly krishna is teaching here the glories of god which he mentions all the amazing stuff that you find in nature and in among human beings also and all of that um we are not meant to think of them so we are not meant to think of you know who is the greatest of the sages who which is the greatest of one the most wonderful of the rivers who is the greatest of the warriors the, that's not the point the point is those are things which at, which attract our attention automatically and krishna is saying they are all meant to to bring your attention to me that's what i am teaching to god mm-hmm. not to the world they automatically our attention goes to the world anyway um that all of these are pervaded by god and how are they pervaded by god in in vedanta what is the relationship between brahman the ultimate reality and this universe brahman is said to be the cause of the universe in fact in any theistic religion god is the cause of the universe but cause in what sense creator but creator in what sense um in in uh, the philosophical language both material cause and instrumental cause god is the intelligence behind the creation of the entire universe and also the stuff out of which the universe is made uh, in hindi banne wala bhi aur banane wala bhi the one who, who makes this banane wala who makes this universe and banne wala what is made into this universe so in vedanta material cause and instrumental cause are both um, of brahman the ultimate reality that's uh, exemplified by the example of the the spider for example in mundaka upanishad 
Yathornanavi srijate grinhate cha as the spider produces a web out of its own body. And the web, the spider is the creator of the web in two senses. One, uh, the very material of the web is produced from the body of the spider. So the material cause of the web is the spider. But also two, the spider is the designer, the one who is actually making the web. Similarly, God is supposed to be the material of this universe, the ultimate, ultimately what this universe is made of, and uh, uh, also the intelligence behind this universe. Of course, that's all again in Advaita Vedanta, those who have been learning. You would say, but isn't that the lower truth, the relative truth, Vyavaharika? Yes, as long as you seek an explanation of what the world is, that's what, what the world is. But then, if that's true, in that case, whenever we experience the world, we are in a certain sense experiencing God. We are experiencing God. And Krishna is using that to draw our attention towards God. Um, in the Mahanara and Upanishad, you find um, that Yatya kinchid jagat sarvam drishyate shruyate piva antar bahishchatat sarvam so, this entire universe, in Vedanta, entire universe means three levels. One is this physical universe which we experience, but also the subtle universe of mind, mind, thought. So, in Vedanta, Vedantic cosmology, that's also part of the universe. And then the third, the, the causal, not casual, causal universe, that is Maya. All of them, whatever you see or hear about, there's a lot that we don't uh, see. There's a lot that we study, we learn from science or from religion. Drishyate shruyate. Drishyate means whatever you experience with your senses or with the instruments which extend the power of our senses. And whatever you hear about, whatever you, you know, the scientists tell us or people in religion tell us and so on. All of that, all of that is pervaded by Narayana. God, Saguna Brahman, Ishwara, Bhagavan, the God of religion, pervading all of that. Narayana exists. Um, There's an interesting point which the commentator Ramsukdasji raises. He says this list of divine glories, Vibhuti, you find this in the Bhagavad Gita, 10th chapter, but also you find it in the Srimad Bhagavatam. And there Krishna is teaching his disciple Uddhava. His friend, disciple, uh, almost just like uh, Arjuna. And there also he mentions, these are the vibhutis, glories of God. And you can think of God by looking at these vibhutis. But interestingly, there are differences in the list. So the list here and the list there, they are not the same. There's some difference, some commonalities, some differences. For example, we read uh, among the great priests, Purodhasam, Brihaspati, uh, that I am Brihaspati among the great, you know, those who priests who officiate in sacrifices. In Bhagavad Gita, we read this. There, Krishna says, Purodhasam Vasishtoham. Among the great priests who officiate in sacrifices, I am Vasishta. The great sage Vasishta. The great sage Brihaspati. But why uh, the difference? The same Krishna is saying, is giving, is, say, is saying this, is giving a list of the glories of God. Among priests, I am this. But why did he give two different names in this, you know, the same teacher giving two different um, uh, uh, lists, instructions? 
So the commentator Ram Sukhdasji points out because the point is not who is the greatest of the uh, priests or the, big, uh, the most wonderful of the rivers or the greatest of the warriors or the best among, you know, the best among fishes or what not. No, no, no. The point is these ones should remind you of Krishna. That's all. You think of Brihaspati, the great wise teacher, you think of Krishna. All the wisdom, the knowledge comes from Krishna. You think of the great sage Vasishta, all his glories, they come from God. So that's the uh, idea behind it. One more point. Um, I know many of these things, we can't relate to it. This is uh, very ancient, a different, almost alien culture. And that too, very ancient, uh, thousands of years ago. So many people in modern India also wouldn't know some, some of these references. And certainly they wouldn't see these in the world around them. So the point here is, we, whoever we are, who are seeking God, wherever we find excellence, something attractive, powerful, amazing, just connect it to God, that all of that comes from God. That's the basic practice. The goal is, Krishna will tell us, Vasudeva Sarvamiti. In some way or the other, you have to find yourself in the state where you see God with eyes open and eyes closed. That's it. This is one powerful way. Alright, with that preamble, let's go on. Number 34. Those who are comfortable, you can chant um, after me. Mrityu Sarvaharaschaham Mrityu Sarvaharaschaham Udbhavascha Bhavishyatam Udbhavascha Bhavishyatam Kirti Shrirvakchanarinam Kirti Shrirvakchanarinam Smritir Medha Dhritikshama Smritir Medha Dhritikshama I am the all-destroying death, the prosperity of potentially prosperous beings. Amongst women, I am fame, prosperity, speech, memory, intelligence, fortitude and forgiveness. Um, so first, I am death. Death among among the, those that rob you of everything. Sarva harascha, that takes everything away from you. I, I, am, I am death. That sounds ominous, but... Vedanta says, whatever there is in life and in death, it must be Brahman, logically. If it's there, it must be Brahman. So even death is God. And that, what does death do? It takes everything away from us. Vivekananda says, everybody dies. Saints die and sinners die. Emperors die and paupers die. The wise die and the ignorant die. And death comes for everybody and none escape it. Krishna has said this already in the Gita earlier. Um, Jatasya hi dhruvo mrityu. Firm, certain, inevitable is the death of those that are born. And then he adds, dhruvam janma mrityasya. And certain is birth for those who are dead. So, here also, saying that I am death, and we will, you know, we, we feel shocked. But then the next he says, just, just after that, the next phrase is, aham udbhavascha bhavishyatam. See, what he's saying here is, all these divine glories, all the beings who have these divine glories, they will all pass away. You know, 
whether it's the greatest of sages, the most powerful of warriors, uh, Kubera, the lord of wealth, uh, uh, you know, the sun and the moon and all of that, whatever he talks about, even the river Ganga and all, whatever is the beginning will have an end. All of it will pass away and along with them their glories will pass away. But those glories will come back again. As we see all the time, there are younger generations coming up. You know, smarter, uh, stronger, more intelligent, more, um, more capable, more talented. The same glories come back again and again. So the glories, they do not perish. They go back to God and then they, and God invests newer generations with, with that. So I am death, but death is not really the end of all things. It will come back again in some form or the other. Mrityu Sarvaharashchaham One powerful spiritual practice is to think about death, one's own death. We, we, that's one thing we avoid. Ernst Becker, he wrote that book, The Denial of Death. He got the Pulitzer Prize. The Denial of Death. He says that the one thing we are all scared of is death. And we say, oh, I'm not scared of it. You are, you're just avoiding it. You're putting it, pushing it down to the... Um, uh, the into the basement of your mind, the subconscious. And this all-pervasive fear of death manifests in us in what Ernst Becker, he called the immortality projects. The immortality projects. Whatever we do in life, the most basic level, a family and children is an immortality project. Saving money is an immortality project. Donating for, you know, that you get name and fame and somewhere, you, for charity, is an immortality project. Um, writing a book is an immortality project. Founding an organization is an immortality project. For him, that's his idea. And they're all doomed to fail. Because they may continue for some time, but you won't. So we are all afraid of death. The, the psychoanalyst R.D. Lang he said that human beings are scared of three things. Um, death, their own minds, and other people. <laughs> the other people, bit, uh, even the, uh, the existentialist Sartre, he said, hell is other people, famously he said that, right? <laughs> hell is other people. Um, so, death, our own minds, we are scared of our own minds. What our mind will make us do next? All the trouble that ever we have got into is because of our own mind, more or less. Sometimes trouble comes from outside, but our reaction to it makes it worse. So our, our minds are really, Krishna has already said in the, an earlier chapter, your greatest friend is your mind, your worst enemy is your mind. The mind controlled, purified, sublimated is your greatest friend. The mind uncontrolled is your worst enemy. So death. And the answer in Vedanta is that you do not die. I'm sorry for being so morbid. The, <laughs> this morning I had to do this uh, little documentary shoot from the National Mental Health Authority. So it's a suicide prevention awareness um, uh, program is going on. So I had to talk about, don't kill yourself. It's a bad idea. <laughs> it's death. Yeah. So Vedanta says you cannot die. You know, a possible ob objection could be, yeah, so the body dies, you don't die. According to Vedanta, you are not the body, you are not the mind, you are the Atman, consciousness. So if the body dies, you are not dead, you are going to get another body. So can't that be an argument, potential argument for committing suicide? 
so if I'm not going to die, so what's the harm in destroying this particular body? And then the, the point is, nothing comes to an end. Uh, if, you are go- if you think you're going to end things by, by dying, no. It'll start all over again. Someone might say, all right, that's what I want. I want a fresh start. But it won't be a fresh start. It won't be a reset. It'll be the same stuff all over again and much worse. Not just Vedanta, every religion in the world criticizes, condemns the decision to commit suicide because uh, it uh, potentially puts us in a worse position. Our past karma, there's a saying in, in uh, Vedanta, Nabhuktam kshiyate karma. So without experiencing the results of our past karma, the karma will never go away. It will still be there. It will come around someday or the other. And um, on top of that, Suicide creates a huge load of bad karma. So, we end up with worse than where we started off. Or where we ended. Vedanta says you cannot die. You are immortal. You are the Atman. All of us, we are that Atman. And we are that one imperishable existing uh, existence consciousness place. Vivekananda, uh, he says... Never be afraid, for you are that existence, with a capital E. Be always at peace, for you are beyond good and evil. Dharma, dharma, punya, papa, you are beyond, beyond that. Purity, impurity, you are beyond that. Be at peace. So when death comes, let us not be repulsed by it. It is God in another form. Mithyu sarvaharascha. And yet, whatever is Sarvahara means, what I take away everything. And whatever I take away, I give back again. Udbhavascha bhavishyatam. In times to come, again prosperity will come. Again magnificence and goodness will come. And all of that will come back from me again. And then he gives a list of, I think, seven virtues. Yes. So they're called women, but in the sense of, these are goddesses or in the sense of feminine, being feminine, uh, th- these virtues are feminine. Feminine means not that only women have them. Men can have them and should have them too, but just technically they are uh, feminine. 35. Brihat sama tatha samnam Brihat sama tatha samnam Gayatri chanda samaham Gayatri Chandasamaham Masanam Margashir Shoham Masanam Margashir Shoham Ritu Nam Kusumakaraha Ritu Nam Kusumakaraha Of the Vedic lyrics, also I am the Brihat Sama. Of meters, I am the Gayatri. Of, month, of months, I am the uh, Agrahana. Of seasons, I am the spring. This Margashirsha is the ninth month of the Hindu lunar calendar. It's sometime between, it's between November, December, that time. Yeah. And because Krishna has said here, I am Margashirsha, I am that, that month. Uh, so Krishna is it's worshipped in many parts of India in that month. Mantrana Madhye Mantrana Madhye Gayatri Mantroham, the commentator says, among all the mantras, I am the Gayatri. 
So the Gayatri Mantra is the most famous among all the mantras from Vedic mantras. It is said that whatever is in all the Vedas is condensed into the Gayatri Mantra. And the entirety of the Gayatri is then again condensed into Om. So you can just chant Om and that's as good as chanting the Gayatri or chanting the, all of the Vedas. So Om. And among seasons, I am spring. That was sort of a no-brainer. No Although he could have said fall also if he was in New York. <laughs> fall is also magnificent. <laughs> yeah, so fall is also a divine glory of God. Then, the nasty side of it, 36. Dyutam chalayatam asmi Dyutam chalayatam asmi Tejas tejas vinamaham Tejas tejas vinamaham Jayosmi vyavasayosmi Jayosmi vyavasayosmi Sattvam sattvavatamaham Sattvam sattvavatamaham Of those who deceive, I am gambling. Oh. They should put up a statue of uh, Krishna in uh, in Las Vegas, <laughs> in the casino. So it's it's got Krishna's stamp of approval. <laughs> that of of the deceitful, I'm gambling. But it particularly hits home hard to Arjuna because they are at this this terrible juncture because of his brother's addiction to gambling, Yudhishthira's addiction to gambling. We actually have a Vedanta center in Las Vegas. I went there once. So the Swami who established it, who, who inspired others to establish it, he said, should have a Vedanta center there. And when people reel out, of, uh, stumble out of the casinos, lost and broken, you can tell them over that you are Brahman. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So among those who deceive, I am gambling. And um, among the powerful, I am the prowess of the powerful. I am victory. Uh, I am effort. And I am the goodness of the good. Sattva Rajasthamas. Sattva is uh, the, the best quality. Peace, serenity, purity, concentration, um, the capability to hold on to something, dhriti. So that's sattva. And that, that capacity, that spiritual capacity, I am. What about the other things, the laziness or the restlessness? That also he is, but that's not a glory. So he, <laughs> he is pointing out the good things here. Number 37. Vrishninam Vasudevosmi Vrishninam Vasudevosmi Pandavanam Dhananjaya Pandavanam Dhananjaya Muninam apyaham vyasa, Muninam apyaham vyasa, Kavi namushana kavihi, Kavi namushana kavihi. Of the Vrishnis, I am Vasudeva. That's Krishna. He says, I am Krishna. No brainer. We all knew that. But among the Pandavas, I am Arjuna. You. He's talking to Arjuna. He says, I am you. So nobody's been able to say that in, in the history of uh, philosophy all over the world. I am you, literally. He says, I am you. Muninam api aham vyasa. Among all the sages, I am vyasa. 
who's writing all this <laughs> kavi naam ushana kavi so kavi here ushana is shukracharya who was the guru of the demons uh, of the rakshasas so uh, here he says very interesting that he says i am krishna we knew all that we all knew that but then he says i am arjuna i am you the person i'm speaking to what does that mean in the vedantic sense it's easy to explain as pure consciousness as the one sun is reflected in all the pots in the water you know so you have many pots in a garden and they are all filled with water and then the sun is reflected in each of those pots in the water you will see a tiny little sun shining what's this trying to show the pot is the body human body is uh, all sorts um, then animal bodies plant bodies all kinds of living bodies and the water there is the subtle body what you feel just now nothing with the occult or mystical what we all feel right now thoughts feelings emotions memories the personality it also includes the prana the uh, vital forces which keep a body living and in that subtle body in the mind specifically the sun is reflected you will see a tiny reflected sun that is called chidabhasa reflected consciousness what is that the consciousness that we all feel right now what's the sun that's the real consciousness that's atman that's the real you or i i said but i can't sort of get any traction on that idea i understand if you're going to call my body like a pot physical thing and the mind like like water in the pot you know subtle thoughts feelings emotions personality i can even understand the reflected sun as the awareness i think we can all understand we are all aware right now you're conscious but that's not consciousness in itself it's it's borrowed from consciousness which is atman which is our real nature and that atman is one just like the sun is one pots are many water is also different in each of the pots and the reflected suns are also many but the source is one and that one source atman brahman whatever you call it and by the way don't extend the example too far examples are meant to prove only one point yeah. sri ramakrishna used to say upama ekdeshi upama means an analogy is meant to prove only one point so don't say oh the sun is different and pots and water and reflected sun is all different so how can you say it's all one and all one and so that doesn't the example doesn't extend there example just wants to show us that we are this reflected consciousness in in uh, in mind how do i go from this reflected awareness to my real nature i think the best example that i have found is that of the mirror and our reflected face so when you look at a mirror my face is reflected in a mirror and the mirror is like the mind the reflected face is like reflected consciousness now how can i go from that reflected face to the real face you have to turn away from the reflected face it points back towards this see the reflected face is something that i can see but it's not me my true face is something i cannot see but it is me and the reflected face can it's pointing towards my true face you have to like you turn from that and you understand what you are not very different enlightenment is also a bit like that Set, settle down focus on your breath then go and focus in your mind thoughts in the mind is the i sense i am and then you see in that i am also is awareness i'm aware from that awareness i can't put it in words anymore you have to somehow turn back towards its source 
that's what's happening in, in enlightenment. Of course, that's just the beginning of it. And that is the Sankhyan idea of pure consciousness and everything else separate from pure consciousness. And next, the idea would be then, then what is that reflected consciousness? What is the mind? What is the body? What is this universe? All of it will be absorbed back into pure consciousness. It's just an appearance. Krishna is saying, I am all of this. So when Krishna says, I am you, O Arjuna, what does he mean? It's like the sun saying, I am that pot standing next to you. And I am also you, that pot. Because I am shining in both of you. So I am you, O, o Arjuna. Then 38. Dando damayatam asmi. Dando damayatam asmi. Niti rasmi jigishatam. Niti rasmi jigishatam. Maunam chaivas miguhyanam. Maunam chaivas miguhyanam. Gyanam gyana vatamaham. Gyanam gyana vatamaham. Of punishers, I am the rod. It's banned now. <laughs> Can't do that in schools anymore. Of those desirous of victory, I am policy. That is strategy. Of those desires of victory, I am strategy. Of secrets also, I am silence. That's the best kind of secret keeping. Just keep silent. I am the knowledge of the wise. Among the wise, I am, no I am knowledge. So, Danda literally means the stick. Who is the American president who said, speak softly but carry a big stick? Nixon? I don't know. Somebody. Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. So, speak softly but carry a big stick. People make the mistake of doing the opposite. All sorts of rhetoric, but when it comes to action, nothing. Uh, speak softly, but carry a big stick. So Krishna says, I am the big stick. Um, I'm just reminded of one story just now. I hadn't thought of it for decades. Sri Ramakrishna's name, original name was Gadadhara. This is the name given to boys. Gadadhar, however, literally means the wielder of the gada, the mace, the club of the mace. It's an ancient weapon. Uh, now, um, I, I, this is a story not known outside the order. In the, our main monastery, once a Swami was in charge of you know construction and stuff, keeping things going. And it's difficult to do that stuff in, in Belurmat because when it's open, you can't do much. And it's not open, monks are meditating and then you can't do much because <laughs> construction <laughs> makes noise, you can't help it. Um, so he hit upon a plan. What's the time when there's nobody around, the, the monastery is closed and the monks are not meditating? The, the afternoon, the famous Indian uh, siesta. So... <laughs> So he decided, I'll have the, you know, the repairs in the temple done in the afternoon, when everybody is asleep. And so, to everybody's horror, in the afternoon this uh, ungodly pounding and drilling and hammering and roaring of machines started. Now at that time, the head of Belurmat manager was Swami Nirvanananda, uh, Shudji Maharaj, who was an attendant of Swami Brahmananda at one time. Swami Brahmananda, the first president of the order. So Swami Nirvanananda attended Swami Brahmananda when he was a young monk. 
And before Swami Brahmananda passed away, he had blessed Swami Nirvanananda. That it's there in the books. That may you, you have attend, you have taken care of me well. I bless you that you will attain Brahma Jnana in this life, enlightenment in this very life itself. And he was an extraordinary person, Swami Nirvanananda. I, I, I saw him maybe, well maybe he saw me more than once. I have only one memory of him as a little kid. My parents had taken me to him and uh, he was famous for a penetrating gaze. It seems that he could see through a person very deeply. Um, so there are many stories of that. Um, it is said that he had some extraordinary powers. One Swami, he narrated this to us. He went to Swami Nirvanananda, this is decades ago, and fell at his feet. He had the flair for the dramatic, this Swami, and <laughs> said, Swami, just as your Guru blessed you with, um, you know, Brahma Jnana, so bless me, put your hands on my head. And bless me that I may become enlightened in this life. Bless me that I may have the realization of Brahman and become enlightened. And that famous penetrating stare. He looked, looked at me, the Swami said, he looked at me through, through as if, like I, like I felt like a glass case as he could see right through me. And he said, I can put my hands on your head, but then you'll lose your head. And then people will blame me. You'll, you'll go crazy. You'll go crazy, he said. You will get it. You'll become enlightened, but you'll also be, get, go mad. Without sufficient purity, if you get these, you know, in the very next chapter we'll see. Whatever we are seeing here, Arjuna hears all this carefully and he likes it. And he says, alright, you are, uh, you know, the sage Vyasa, you are uh, the mountain Himalaya, you are this, you are that. I get it. But I just still see them as mountains and rivers and people, you know. How can I see you as all of these and actually see you? Not just meditate upon you, not just a technique. Can I actually experience this? And Krishna says, all right. If you want. You asked for it. And that's the 11th chapter. It's, a, it's a, some of the most amazing poetry in Sanskrit. 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Vishwarupa Darshan. And there uh, Sri Krishna gives, gives uh, Arjuna what he wanted. But what was the result? He was terrified. Arjuna was terrified. Did he become enlightened? No. He was just plain scared. And his next prayer was, stop this. I don't want to see this. I want to see you as a human being again. And Krishna said, all right. <laughs> Back to what I was earlier. Uh, so this is the, the Swami, uh, Nirvana Nandaji. And I remember my own, it's all building up to a story, I promise. <laughs> so my own experience I still remember. The only, only time I remember him is I was a little boy, my parents had taken me and we were, I still remember that room and uh, as if it was yesterday. I've forgotten everything, what happened before it and after it. That was, I don't know, um, 40, 45 years ago. And I remember bowing down to him, pushed by my parents, and looked up and I still remember that gaze. There was, there was something to it. An unblinking, like a searchlight, but a searchlight which is shining into your soul, into your past and your present and future. And he looked into that. And he would say something, which turned out to be true, deeply true all your life afterwards. Alright, so this is the background. So Swami Nirvananda is the, he's the Swami in charge of the monastery. So when he heard this racket, 
he called the swami in charge of uh, maintenance and that swami was scared what's going to happen what did i do wrong now because that's the only only time when he can do work <laughs> and so he went and he bowed down to swami nirvanananda and the swami did not scold him did not say anything about yeah. you know afternoon is also a part of the ritual in the main temple of sri ramakrishna where sri ramakrishna is supposed to be, he is he takes rest so the, he's invited to there's a bed actually Uh, upstairs in the temple and the deity it's a traditional in all hindu temples the deity is supposed to rest the famous indian siesta so it's god siesta time also and if you create a racket at that time <laughs> so swami nirvanananda said to this monk who was a very senior monk he said who lives there in the temple said sri ramakrishna what's his name you got taken aback said sri ramakrishna said no what's his name gadadhar i said gadadhar and the wielder of the gada and he said then the nirvana ji said big never forget the gada of gadadhar the the mesh of gadadhar he is the wielder of the stick you know be careful it is not for nothing that you know we don't want to talk about it anymore but in christianity the old testament god is a god of wrath yeah. uh, so i'm reminded of we were in, in class in uh, at harvard divinity school and studying christian contemplative class classics with a wonderful teacher professor stephanie paulsell and uh, two incidents i'll tell you and go on again related to this she, she was teaching us uh, saint teresa's book interior castle uh, saint teresa of avila she lived in in spain about 400 years ago extraordinary mystic saint and she is writing to the other nuns advice guidance and always she is writing to take care of your health and uh, you know make sure that you don't fall ill and then our professor was explaining to us students in 21st century at harvard divinity school you know why is she always talking about not falling sick and you see in those days people used to fall ill a lot there was a lot of sickness there was a lot of unhappy i mean a sickness all kinds of diseases i mean which modern medicine we have overcome i still remember that she said that next week harvard closed down yes. covid hit we we think we think oh in those days people used to fall sick a lot now within within 7 days the whole world is sick and your 21st century edifice of science and technology shut down because of that and the last class we had before we shut down so she was obviously talking about god and the pandemic and everything the professor said in jewish theology god has um, these two thrones one is a throne of mercy another is a throne of judgment and i still remember she said that now for the time being he is seated on his terrible throne of judgment and we pray for him to change his seat <laughs> the seat of mercy <laughs> so that's the beginning of the pandemic so krishna says here i am the big stick dando damayatam asmi 
and he enjoys politics he says for those who want to get their way in the in the world i am am politics he says neeti rasmi i'm strategy and politics mahatma gandhi was once asked that aren't you bringing religion into the field of politics and he replied famous reply he says the two most powerful forces for human good that i am aware of are religion and politics and therefore i shall not cease to do politics in religion and religion in politics as long as i live <laughs> all right let's go ahead maunam jayvasmi guhyanam of those who keep secrets i am silence so silence is the best secret keeper mm. we had this swami who was in charge of a big ashram is a senior swami and big ashram means a lot of visitors but he wouldn't speak and he would speak but not much very little i remember it's a different different country i remember when i first visited it the country and the, the other swami said we'll show you around this this place it's a wonderful place i'm not taking the name of the place because the swami is still alive <laughs> you might be offended by this so uh we'll show you around i said no i must ask the head of the ashram first before i go anywhere on you know like a sightseeing <laughs> trip and they were they shrugged all right ask him you ask for it so i asked him swami should i go around and see these places and the swami said what will you see there's nothing to see <laughs> i was supposed to go to universities and give talks universities there won't be anybody you can go <laughs> so he he was like rain on your parade all the time and he wouldn't speak so somebody asked him swami why don't you speak and the swami said he had a very dry sense of humor he said now the only complaint against me is that i don't speak <laughs> that means if i did speak there would be so many complaints i am silence so silence is a big spiritual practice i remember this monk teaching meditation so silence of the body of the speech of the mind and he was like a you know parade instructor he barked at this uh, the young monks who were sitting there in meditation posture hello mat bolo mat socho mat in hindi hello mat means don't move so they all frozen okay don't speak don't think so silence of um, the body of speech but also mind sometimes they i've seen so many people practice silence but silence of the speech forcibly is not good once in a while it's good because we speak more than necessary i know I, i'm speaking this so. <laughs> you can all say look who's talking <laughs> yes but so for example mahatma gandhi used to observe uh, one day of silence in a week Swami Ranganathananda ji, thirteenth president of our order, he used to observe silence on Thursdays. I think. Uh-huh. I knew this monk who was silent for more than for years, and once we were roommates, you know, in an ashram. So he had the other bed, I had this bed, and he would communicate with gestures, but he wouldn't speak. Although everybody besieged him to speak, it's very, very difficult to work with such a person. He's not going to speak to you. Uh, and he communicates with gestures you can speak back to him so we went to sleep all night he spoke <laughs> all night he spoke just rambled on 
And the next day in the morning when I told him, Swami, you're speaking at night. And he has, he has gestures like this. Like, who, me? <laughs> no. No. See, that's repression. That's repression. There's an innate desire to communicate. And you force it down. It comes out, uh, say, you know, sub from the subconscious at night in dreams and so on and so forth. There was another Swami who kept quiet for 10 years. I met him too. 10 years, he didn't speak. He, of course, he didn't need to speak much. He lived in a Himalayan ashram. I met him there. Um, and then after 10 years, he broke his vow of silence. And then nobody would go near him. Because he had lots and lots of things to say. <laughs> and woe betide you if he grabbed hold of you. So, um, silence, yes. Silence of the mind. It, it is, uh, uh, speak less. Speak to the point. Speak what is beneficial. Don't cut off speech altogether. Number 39. Yachapi sarvabhutanam Yachapi sarvabhutanam Bijam tadaham arjuna Bijam tadaham arjuna Natadasti vinayat syat Natadasti vinayat syat Maya bhutam characharam Maya bhutam characharam I am also Arjuna, that which is the germ of all beings. There is no being moving or stationary which can exist without me. So moving and stationary means moving stationary is like you know, plants and ferns and shrubs. Moving animals and birds and human beings. So I'm the I'm the seed of all beings in two senses. One is as Brahman, as the absolute, as the existence consciousness place. The very existence of the universe is Brahman. It's or rather borrowed from Brahman. All our consciousness, that the conscious experiences we are getting, is because Brahman is consciousness itself. And all value, goodness, the point of it all is Ananda, that is Brahman, Brahman itself. So Satchit Ananda, in that sense Brahman is the ground of this universe. So in that sense seed. But there is another meaning, that's not what he means here actually. That's fine. But what explains this tremendous diversity? Why is one person like this and why is another person like that? Why does one per you know, people say if all is God then why are some people evil, why are some people horrible, why are some people saintly? If all is God then everybody should be saintly? No. The difference is, in, as he says, the seed. The subtle bodies, the samskaras, our conditioning from lifetimes in the past, it's all there in what is called the seed form of the causal body, which remains in maya. And again it comes, comes forth. And so Sri Ramakrishna gives the example of the old lady at the end of the harvest, she goes to the field, and this old woman, she collects the seeds. The plants have been harvested. She collects the seeds and puts them in little different um, cloths, little pieces of cloth and ties them up. So next time when they are going to sow the seeds and get a new crop, so whatever she has collected, those crops, those plants, those fruits, those vegetables will come out. They are all different from each other depending on the seed. So our nature, two words are used in Sanskrit, Swarupa Swabhava. Swarupa, your real nature. What's your real nature? Brahman. We are all nothing other than God. Existence, consciousness, place. The absolute. Nothing other than the absolute. You are one with God all the time. That's your real nature. But Swabhava. 
See, the swabhava is also translated as um, nature. <laughs> There's no other way. In English, you can't do anything else. That is different for all beings. So that is the kind of conditioning that our minds have undergone over many lifetimes. And that constitutes. Uh, the definition is prachina karma samskara. The conditionings we have done through our own karmas in ancient lives, forgotten lives in the past. That is still with us. That explains the differences am amongst all of us. And not just human beings, the entire diversity of nature. So Krishna says, I am the cause of all this diversity. Then 40. Nantosmi mama divyanam. Nantosmi mama divyanam. Sorry, I made a mistake. Nanto asti mama divyanam. Nanto asti mama divyanam. Vibhuti nam parantapa. Vibhuti nam parantapa. Esha tu deshata prokto. Esha tu deshata prokto. Vibhuti vistaro maya. Vibhuti vistaro maya. O Arjuna, as my glories are infinite, it is not possible to state them in detail. I have only stated in brief these details of my glories. So, here he points out, actually everything is the glory of God. The entire universe is Brahman. So, I am not going to give a list of everything in the universe. I am just pointing out some prime ones which you can use for meditation, to use them to remind them of you, uh, of me, or remind uh, you of me. Um, then 41. Yad yad vibhuti mat sattvam. Yad yad vibhuti mat sattvam. Shreemad urjitam evava. Shreemad urjitam evava. Tattadeva vagachatvam. Tattadeva vagachatvam. Mama tejongsha sambhavam. Whatever, whatever thing is glorious, excellent or preeminent, verily know that is born of a portion of my splendor. So whatever you see in this universe, which you find extraordinary, especially in human beings, an extraordinary talent, somebody is an extraordinary singer or, or a painter or a great scientist or a great intellect or... Um, or has great compassion for others, a great philanthropist, um, ingenious. All these things which we see in the human world, Krishna is saying they all are a part of my splendor. They come from me. They are a manifestation of my splendor. Sri Ramakrishna pointed this out a number of times. In the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, he said, wherever you see something excellent, but something extraordinary, that is a manifestation of the um, power of the Divine Mother. Again, be careful. We, what we do is, whenever we find that something extraordinary, we end up worshipping that person, especially in this day and age. It's a celebrity culture. So you found, find somebody who's a good actor, good, good sportsman, good, um, you know, um, uh, whatever, writer, especially people who are creative. We worship creativity in this day and age. It's a mistake. They should be praised, they should be um, given prestige, they, they should get um, whatever they want 
because of their um, talents but remember all these talents come from god i remember hearing a talk by this lady who's an author and she if i'm not wrong it's the, the same lady who wrote it eat pray love yeah. a ted talk she gave it I, if i'm not wrong i might be making a mistake she writes about why creative people have such high rates of suicide in this world um and she made a good point she made this point that if you look at creativity until the end of the 18th or 19th centuries creativity was seen as a gift of the gods yeah somebody writes about a poem i tried to grab it grasp it before it passed me by so as if it's coming from outside i'm trying to grasp it and then put it down in in pen and paper but we don't think in that way now creativity is valued because it's an industry now we know that the most valuable thing is human creativity till now now it's already outdated because chat gpt has come but uh, the most valuable thing is human creativity and so we glorify deify celebrate the people who display that creativity and put enormous pressure on them to continue performing in that way but that's almost impossible and this that's one reason why sometimes it drives them crazy the tremendous adulation popularity and expectation and pressure so all those glories come from god they they do not come from me if it comes through me i'm glorified i'm very happy it came through me it belongs to god a great swami also told me this these are powers which come from god be, be reverential when they function in you but don't claim them for yourself they have come they will operate for a while they'll be gone after some time here krishna says this whatever you find glorious excellent preeminent that comes from my uh, splendor it so let me just wrap this up 42 athava bahune tena athava bahune tena kingya tena tavarjuna तवाजुन विष्टभ्यादृष्टभ्यादृष्णन स्थित जगत एकांशेन स्थित जगत बट वॉट अवेल ऑफ वॉट अवेल इज इट टू यू टू नो ऑल दीज डिटेल्स आई एक्जिस्ट परवेदिंग दिस एंटायर यूनिवर्स बाय अ पोर्शन ऑफ माई सेल्फ So Krishna ends with an important point here. Don't study creation. Look for the creator. Yeah. Study of creation is science. That's good as a pursuit. But if you are a spiritual seeker, seek God, not the creation of God. Mm-hmm. Sri Ramakrishna would put in his homely way. He would point it out. He said, "Those were the days of landlords. So if you want to, um, you know, what's the what's the use of going around in the garden of the landlord?" trying to count how many mango trees and how many pineapple trees he has or how many so you go straight and meet the landlord and make friends with the landlord then he will tell you what is there in his garden and how many stocks and bonds he has so those are the days of the um, you know the british east india company so the valued thing was investing in stocks and bonds in the east india company so how many stocks and bonds he has how many mango trees he has how many pineapple trees he has he will tell you yeah so go straight and make friends with god and krishna is saying the same thing here there is no need to know all this o oh arjuna 
I exist everywhere in everything. As Vivekananda said, never approach anything except as God. No person, no situation in life, no in, no non-living thing also. Uh, all of this is um, summed up by the commentator here. This particular commentary I'm using is uh, Sridhar Swami. Is one of the he he wrote a commentary 600 years ago. It's a very simple commentary, but. Uh, uh, he is a follower of Shankaracharya. He sort of harmonizes devotion and knowledge. He writes a verse here at the end of the 10th chapter, telling us the point of this chapter. In this, uh, you won't find it uh, in the original Gita. This is not the Gita, it's the, something added by the commentator. Indriya dwaratas chitte bahir dhavati satyapi. Isha Drishti Vidhanaya Vibhutir Dashame Bravit. The mind runs through the senses into objects of the world. That's the prime obstacle to spiritual life. Since the mind continuously runs through the senses to the world outside, the Lord has taught here Isha Drishti to see, you know, in the things where your mind is going, to see God there have God vision there to you change your perspective connected to the divine that is what has been said in the 10th chapter okay comments questions yes tell us your name and ask the question a uh, uh, mic he's going to get give you a mic raise your hand yeah here uh, good evening Swamiji my name is Madhav um, do you lose your sense of death anxiety when becoming a Swamiji within the order? And if so, how would you describe that feeling? Would, would you say it's liberating? Or could, the, could it be potentially dangerous to lose that sense of death, of death anxiety? And Do you lose death anxiety? I thought the question was going to be, do you lose death anxiety when you're enlightened? That everybody can say, yes, of course, because you lose all kinds of anxieties if you're enlightened. But if you bec become a Swami, do you lose death anxiety? In a certain sense, technical sense, yes, because we are supposed to be dead. Yes, many people don't know that. Among the elaborate rituals which are there before you become a monk, uh, one ritual is the uh, where you perform the funeral rites for your ancestors. Now, you perform them for your ancestors. Everybody, every traditional Hindu does that. But the monks do something more which... Anyway, pe people know, so I can tell you. <laughs> They do it even, what is not done by anybody else, they do it even for their living parents, as if they are dead. So that might be very shocking to living parents. <laughs> but the reason they do it is because uh, a traditional dutiful Hindu is supposed to do, do those rites when a parent dies. But once you become a monk, you can't do those rites. You lose the right to do those rites. <laughs> because you step out of the, the, the Vedic system uh, into, into sannyasa. So there are certain rites you cannot do anymore. One of them being the funeral rites. And the interesting thing is, after performing those funeral rites for your ancestors, then you perform it for yourself. Atma Pinda it is called. Which is sort of unique. So that is, you are now dead to the world. And it's very interesting. Only, I think maybe in India only it's recognized by law. To become a monk, a Hindu monk, is equal to civil death. So, civil death means you lose all rights uh, to properties of your parents or ancestors, 
everything that you possessed earlier, you lose all rights to all of, all of that, legally. Yeah. And uh, so, um, technically you're supposed to be dead. And then you are invested with a new name, a new identity, a new set of mantras and everything is, uh, so and there are many things involved in that. But this is again, you might say it's formal. Does it psychologically change you completely? Uh, that would be miraculous if it changed everybody completely. It depends on your, your preparation. Technically, technically, at the point of sannyas, ideally you should be prepared to that point where you become enlightened when you get sannyas. When the guru gives you the mahavakya, tells you that you are Brahman, you should realize that you are Brahman. That's ideally. But for the vast majority, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Do monks in general lose fear of death? Um, practically, I'll tell you one thing. I was once in a hospital. I was a very young, a novice monk, and I was very sick. So I was in the hospital for two months, and that ward they had put only monks. And the other monks were all old. They're old and dying, actually dying. So I got to see that. It's true, I didn't see a single monk who was afraid of death. And the doctors and the nurses, they would say, this ward is different from all the other wards. And I had so many experiences of these old swamis and, yeah. Um, yeah, I never saw them, anyone ever afraid of death. They were very relaxed about it. That's true. It's a good question, actually. Uh, Swamiji, just to follow up to that. Yeah. Um, could you consider the, the, the converse? So you spoke about uh, losing death anxiety in the context of um, realization of Brahman. Yeah. But would, um, would the converse also be possible? Could... Uh, loss of death anxiety also result in being in becoming suicidal and would no. you say hypothetically would it be possible no would, would I, I don't still think so one who is suicidal the one who is suicidal actually is deeply attached to the body why does one want to kill oneself because there is something terribly wrong in my life you know despair meaninglessness often deep depression that it's so awful that it can't get better if it did get better then I won't want to kill myself so therefore, uh, I am not the target of killing myself. The target is my problem. right? And I somehow think if I wipe out this body, my problems will go away. That's the deepest kind of body identification. It's strange. Destroying your own body in the hope that it will end you literally means you think you are just the body and nothing else. You're quite sure that if the, this body is dead, then I am released from all suffering forever. You aren't. Not at all. Not one bit. Whereas enlightenment shows you that you're not the body. You clearly see what you are. And there's the first thing that goes away is the fear of death. You know, the body will, I mean, it will still be unpleasant. If it's a very painful death, it can be very unpleasant. But you also know that it's not your end. You are not born with the body. You do not die with the body. You're free of the fear of the death of the body. You realize it's, you've done it a thousand times earlier. So, uh, yeah. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't be afraid you become fearless but that fearlessness is not equal to be, being suicidal however um, one can in that case give up the body for a good cause fearlessly and there are so many um, cases of monks who devote their lives uh, to the service of others in our order it has been seen fearlessly they know that they might contract a terrible disease or they might die it's all right i can give up this body in the service of uh, suffering humanity 
because they have a kind of i don't know if they're enlightened but they have a kind of deep conviction at least that i am not this body yeah. tell us your name and ask the question shami ji uh, alokananda um it was wonderful listening to you uh my question is um, that you said that we need to be scared of our own mind uh, no we don't need to be people are rd laying he was a well known psychoanalyst in, in britain i think 1950s or 60s um so he he specialized in madness and uh, he he said human beings are scared of three things death their own minds and other people but generally i i think many people are scared of their own mind um, uh, and the other thing you mentioned is when you try to suppress something then you really get out of control like the person who was you know speaking to himself all night then where do you kind of draw the balance on one controlling your mind yet not getting not suppressing it to such an extent that you actually lose it good question um so that has to be done systematically that is the purpose of all yoga karma yoga bhakti yoga raja yoga gyana yoga systematically train the mind krishna himself says in the 6th chapter of the bhagavad gita the well trained mind is your best friend the untrained mind uncontrolled mind is your worst enemy it is usually because we don't spend any time it's not taught in schools or universities and we don't spend any time in training our minds and therefore we all generally have uncontrolled minds and that's why it's our worst enemy and that's why what the psychoanalyst noted people in general are scared of their minds so it has to be trained i remember a beautiful lesson i learned this was in the high himalayas i was once so sitting um on the bank of the river ganga there it's a torrent narrow torrent there this was in the rainy season in um, august september august actually and a monk came to me sat next to me and he told me something i've never forgotten he says the distinction between an untrained mind and a yogi's mind or actually the word he used yogi's mind vishaya vishaya vishay's mind that means worldly mind worldly mind and yogi's mind the difference is this he said look at this river at that time it's a torrent of water and he says if you try to cross it it's dangerous it will sweep you away and in fact just the day before somebody had been swept away so it will sweep you away and you'll die uh second so it, it the the, un, the worldly mind is just like that you don't know where the mind will take you and what will make you do do next people committing suicide just like that and for no particular reason a lot of doctors know that if you can tide over that moment of crisis in many cases um then they don't want to commit suicide anymore that's the mind look at the terrible mischief of the mind so it's like this river it can sweep you away if you're not careful that's one he said second the river is at that time it's in this landslides it's muddy so the water of the river is muddy i still remember in hindi he was saying khud nahi pee sakte dusro ko bhi nahi pila sakte you can't drink it yourself you cannot offer it to anybody else similarly the worldly mind uh, is uh, so muddy it it troubles you it creates anxiety unhappiness depression guilt in you and it troubles everybody else around you everybody is troubled by you you are your trouble to yourself and trouble to everybody else that's the second thing third thing he said is uh, 
Look how fast it goes. How much water is there and how fast it goes. Um, similarly, the worldly mind, full of countless thoughts, emotions, sudden impulses, urges, and one changing after the another without uh, any rhyme or reason. There are patterns of behavior like whirlpools and all of them are generally negative, not so good at all. Now the trained mind, he said, the yogi's mind, um, he said, you come in the winter, Swami, you will find this same river because it's partially frozen then and there's much less water. You will find the same river. It is, there's so less water, I mean, it's so easy to, you can walk across from this side of the ba this bank to the other bank. It's easy to cross, it's not dangerous at all. So the yogi's mind is helpful to you and helpful to everybody else, it's not a danger to you. Second, he said, the water is so clear, I still remember, he said, if you throw up like a, you know, like a ten cent or a quarter, you can read the denomination of the coin on the bottom of the river. It's like, like, like sheer glass. The water is so clear. Similarly, the yogi's mind is so pure. And it's not muddy with all kinds of thoughts. It's exactly the thoughts which the yogi wants. And he says the mind is so sweet and cool. Uh, the water. He says you can drink it yourself, you can offer it to others to drink. Similarly, the yogi's mind is peaceful, serene, positive, a great friend to you and you are a blessing to everybody else. You radiate peace and strength and positivity to people around you. And then the third thing he said was that uh, the water is less because it's frozen. So it's exactly whatever wa thoughts the yogi wants, only those thoughts are there. Whatever he does not want, those thoughts do not arise. So he gave the difference between trained mind, untrained mind, yogi's mind, worldly mind. Yes. Anybody else? This yeah, you have to boldly raise your hand, otherwise they can't see you. Yeah. Next is This is money. Yes. Uh, you mentioned uh, never accept anything except God. And uh, when who, some who, who do not accept anything except no, God? No, you, you said a uh, couple of times, never oh. accept anything except God. Oh, no, uh, never approach anything except as God, Vivekananda said. Yeah, Vivekananda uh, so said. So you approach um, the world as divine with that attitude. Yeah. And uh, anything that you see good or excellent thing, so it comes from God. The and reminds you of God. Reminds, reminds us of God. of God, right? So, um, I go to my brother's house and I get good food prepared by my sister-in-law. And uh, I think I should appreciate her even instead of thinking, okay, it emerges from God or something like that. So. Is that the right way or should we no, attribute you definitely to appreciate. Uh, see, what is our worship to all these beings around us? You're going to worship God, right? You're yeah. going to worship God in all beings. Now, when, when God comes as a hungry person, what is your worship to God? In, is, what is the right way of worshipping God in a hungry person? I, is it to wave lights and chant Sanskrit uh, hymns and to or offer, is it to, to, to offer food? To offer food. What is the right way to worship God in an illiterate person, to offer education, education, uh, right. and so on. Similarly, somebody who is doing a great job, what's the best way of uh, worshipping God in that person? Is to encourage that person. One thing that I have noted, it is said of Masharada, but I have seen it in um, senior monks always. They see even the tiniest good quality in anybody and you praise it to the skies. We used to think, hey, it's not all that good, there's no need to praise so much. 
<laughs> they know that it's not all that good. But the point is that by encouraging in this way, the person develops, blossoms, comes forth. Your uh, way of worship is to take a person higher than where he or she is. Your, your praise, of course, should have that purpose, that I'm bringing out the, the divinity in this person. I remember Swami Ranganathanandaji, the most positive person I think I, one of the people have met, I have also seen. He was the president of our order, 13th president. And uh, um, if you criticized somebody, he would keep quiet gravely. And if you praised even a little bit, he would say, yes, that is wonderful, that person should be encouraged. So that praise, um, I remember one little incident about positivity, let me tell you there. I mentioned Swami Ranganathanandaji, the 13th president of our order. At that time, see, there was only one more person more positive than that who came to visit Belurmat, and that was the ex-president of India, Abdul Kalam. So he came to, the, to our main monastery to visit um, Swami Ranganathananda. And one of the monks who was there at that meeting told me later at, at dinner in the monastery later on. He said, the president of India and the president of our order. And he said, the president of India, Dr. Abdul Kalam, was just like a little boy. You know, he was so simple, unassuming. He was sitting at the edge of his chair and listening uh, you know, eagerly to what the Swami was saying. And the Swami said something negative in the sense that, I worry about where the nation is going, about corruption and... And, the, and Dr. Abdul Kalam said, No, Swami, all this great spiritual heritage of ours is there. All these books and these teachings are there. They are there. They will um, solve all the problems in the years to come. Don't worry. It was like consoling a child. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> so that's how you encourage a person. Swami Vivekananda said to take them from where they are and give them a, an upward push. If you cannot, he says, then fold your hands and uh, wish them well. Pray for their welfare. Never condemn, never criticize. Um, the lady here, she had her hand. And we'll end with you. Swamiji, again, it's a, it's a pleasure seeing you in person, and I've only heard your beauty videos, so it's again an honor to be here. Um, so, I had a question, I'm Sudeshna. Um, so the question was about, I think last class you mentioned about the law of karma, right? Uh, how it operates. Um, so just a just again a philosophical question around it like if this dream of maya was pleasant would the urge for wake for waking up be be that strong right like i think suffering sort of sort of gives you that a uh, calling to wake up from this dream true, that we're true. at so just wanted to get your perspective yes if the dream it. of maya were pleasant it wouldn't um, you know lead you to that urge to wake up would not be as strong you're right that's why they say that in heaven, there are heavens, Swarga. The gods in heavens, the Devatas, are not particularly spiritual at all. If you read the descriptions of the gods in our, uh, you know, they're almost like the Greek gods. And they're not particularly spiritual. They're not trying for enlightenment. They are powerful and uh, they are having a great time of it. Um, so, and the demons in hell are also not particularly spiritual. If there is too much suffering, then also the urge for enlightenment because right now you are in so much suffering, you can't think of anything higher. If if there is, uh, if there is sickness, if there is hunger, if there is dire poverty, if there is great tyranny, there isn't any very little scope of trying to be spiritual. You know? So, this mixture of 
pleasure and pain which we have in the human life this is said to be very beneficial for spiritual awakening that's why the human life is meant for spiritual awakening one little thing we have noticed in our monastic order is that um, very few of our monks come from extraordinarily rich families some have including uh, uh, one or two people who are princes and uh, some you know, children of billionaires or something they have come um, but mostly not and again not that may, most of the monks come from terribly poor families also it's only from the middle classes and lower middle classes that most of our monastic strength is drawn it's very interesting why should this be so when you are very rich and things go your way um, then it's very difficult to give up that's why the extraordinary story of the buddha who was a prince and he gave up everything even if you have a spiritual urge uh, if you see the difficulties ahead of you then you might think that all right let me be a multimillionaire and an enlightened person also both together what's wrong with that nothing wrong but you see the psychology which works there and people who are in dire circumstances it's very difficult for them to think about metaphysics uh, vivekananda himself said it is uh, a sin to preach metaphysics to a starving man yeah. so yeah. so this mixture of pleasure and pain the struggle that we have in this life uh, that is a good good um, i would say a good motivation a good awakener to spiritual life the gentleman there yes that will be the last question Hello, <coughs> sorry. Hello, Swamiji. Um, What's your name? Prasoon. Prasoon. Um, my question is: What's the difference between suicide and, uh, you know, these realized beings like leaving their body? Mm, that's a good question, actually. Um, and the line is not very clear. There are stories of realized beings voluntarily leaving the body. and some of them might be all right in a meditation or see though that's also a spectrum of things which is sitting in meditation and leave the body that difficult to classify that as suicide but somebody jumps into a river and then, so difficult to say uh, suffice it to say that uh, it is not uh, an accepted or a common practice for a spiritual person to to destroy their body uh, even when it happens for example the jains have something called sallekhana so where the body is not capable of any more spiritual practice at all they stop eating food and all and let the body waste away for the last few days as long as it will survive and go and they do that in a very sort of spiritual and controlled atmosphere i don't know what else to say about it yeah No, so it's difficult to say, but then we have all these stories of you know the gods coming to telling Sri Ram that your mission on earth is over, and so come back to your heavenly abode and so on and so forth. For them, from the, from the perspective of an enlightened person, the body is nothing as nothing, but we cannot get rid of it because it'll just re- lead to more bad karma and a worse starting off point in the next life. If the whole game is to attain enlightenment, then don't. destroy your prime instrument of enlightenment that is this this body 
and the life that has been given. See, on the other side, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, they all, the ancient philosophies, they all talk about how important a human body is. So it's something very valuable. You wouldn't want to destroy it. You want to use it for spiritual progress to the last possible moment. I can end with the words of Swami Bhuteshananda Ji, the 12th president of our order. He was very elderly. Before he passed, he was like 99 nearly. Um, at one point, when he was about 95, somebody asked him, he was old and suffering, asked him about death. And the Swami, he would speak in a slow drawl. He said, look, I have neither the desire to live nor the desire to die. I'm perfectly calm. The Upanishads, Upanishads uh, Ashtavakra and all, all they speak about, let the body go today, let it survive for a hundred ages. It is the same to, to, to you, the enlightened one. See so this, if you are one consciousness behind all bodies and minds, why so much worry about how long this one little particular body is going to live? It will live for maximum, how long will it live? A hundred years? 120 years? That's it. Or if it dies tomorrow, all right for you. You are manifested in billions of bodies. And yet, even without those billions of bodies, you are still the same. You are the absolute existence consciousness place. From that perspective, from the enlightened person's perspective, it's not an, not an issue at all. And from our perspective, we must preserve this human body, live as long as possible, and um, you know, like a useful life. Good. On that note, let me do a peace chant. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Parnamastum So we have finished the 10th chapter. Um, so next we will start the 11th chapter and that will be after the summer break. We will... Uh, uh, start you'll get a notification online and you know, on the website it's in the third week of september however we have a special class a special treat coming up for you on tuesday so there's a swami visiting from banaras swami pranab chaitanya puri and uh, i invited him to give a talk so it'll be unique in the way he'll talk about the gita it's the same subject he'll speak about the gita that's a tuesday at 7 30 but it'll be a little bit of a joint production because uh, i said He's most comfortable in Hindi, Bengali, Sanskrit, so speak in Hindi and I'll translate as we go along. So it'll be kind of a little bit of a joint effort. See, <laughs> let's see how it goes. So those of you who are free, please come and attend that class. Take care. I pray to Thakur Ma Swamiji to bless all of you, bless all of us with peace and joy and devotion and knowledge.